Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, Real Issues and Stories of Every One of Us podcast. Joining us today on Rise Up are our two guests, Dr. Risa Mauricio and Dr. Kathleen Ferrer. But first, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA and a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me today is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Hello, partner. Hey. Welcome, everyone. I am Mindy Ofiana, PNAA's Legislative Committee Chair, Corresponding Secretary of PNAA Foundation, and the past president of Philippine Nurses Association of Southern California. Before my recent retirement, I served as a dual role for a chief operating officer and chief nursing officer in one of the medical centers owned by KPC Group of Companies. So, Mindy, how was your week? It was a busy weekend. Uh I was in Las Vegas because Uh I attended our 25th annual convention and leadership summit of my alma mater, you know, University of Santo Tomas. Wow. We also celebrated the 75th diamond anniversary of our College of Nursing. It was great to see my old classmates reminiscing our escapades as young nursing students. It uh-uh. was beautiful. That must have been exciting. How was the crowd? It was uh, it was crazy. Everybody was just excited, very engaged. All all the individuals were smiling. Yeah. But behind the scenes, the, the planning committee knew that there was something going on. But it was amazing that we are the only ones know that there was something going on and not the not the uh, guests. Uh-huh. So well, that's, that's a good thing. That's good. That's a good yeah. thing. Yeah, this is learnings. There's a lot of learnings, you know, so, despite the fact of all the plans. Were you able to at least have some, you know, leisure too? Uh, I know that was all, all business there, but... <laughs> You can't well, go to course. Vegas and not have some leisure. <laughs> no, I didn't play. Oh. <laughs> I, no, because I, I don't play slots. I uh-huh. play cards. Oh, okay. And I play pie gal. And uh-huh. I, you know, they were close to each other. And I'm just, because, because of the COVID, mm-hmm. I was more careful. Oh, okay. And I just said to myself, no, I'm not going to play. Right. Next time, maybe. So did you fly? Did you fly into? I do. I did. You I did. flew. Okay. Yeah, from LAX to um. Las Vegas. Yeah. And people that were leave, so we were all leaving on Sunday. Uh-huh. And then um, there was apparently Southwest oh, Airlines. Yes, I heard. Did you hear that news? Yeah. That they canceled about a thousand uh-huh. flights, uh-huh. and about four of our um, attendees got affected. Yeah. yeah. So, and she has an early flight at six. By the time she went home, it was at 10 30. Oh, my. Yes, others were, you know, very creative in what they were doing. So they flew to LA. I mean, they drove to LAX, and from LAX they went and changed airlines Uh as well. Was what happened to the for the others? Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you were able to have uh, some time off. I I know it's it's a reunion too. Um, You must have been happy to see some old friends. (laughs) Oh yeah, yes. You know that's what I was saying a while ago. The escapades we had during very young nursing students, curious, curious in many things, and so yes, it was wonderful. Good. Well, um, so. Now let's uh, bring in our first guest for this second episode of Rise Up. 
This publication was made possible by Cooperative Agreement CDC RFA IP212106 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDC HHS. With us today is our first guest for our second episode of Rise Up. Dr. Kathleen Perer is an attending faculty physician in the Division of Hospital Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, Special Immunology Section at Children's National Hospital. She's also an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Dr. Ferrer received her undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering from Brown University and earned her Doctor of Medicine degree from the Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. She completed her residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and eventually served as the medical director of the Baylor College of Medicine Bristol-Myers Squibb Children's Clinical Center of Excellence in Lesotho and assisted with a scale of pediatric HIV care, treatment, and prevention for the country. Currently, Dr. Ferrer serves as the education lead for the Children's National Global Health Initiative and is cultivating the next generation of global health leaders and educators by serving as a faculty mentor for Children's National Presidents and is co-director of the Pediatric Resident Global Child Health Pathway. As the lead physician for the Occupational Health COVID-19 response, she helped design and implement the organization's COVID-19 testing protocols, practice, and vaccination efforts for employees. Dr. Ferrer, good evening. How are you? I am doing well. Yeah, so you are based in Washington, D.C., a very exciting place to be. Yes, it is. It's definitely, there's always something going on for sure. <laughs> so why do you want to become a doctor? Well, um, that's actually, so I think uh, along with many of the nursing colleagues who are watching this podcast, I think it was a calling, you know, mm -hmm. ever since I was a, a child, that's definitely something that I aspired to. I had very early exposure to the hospital environment. My mom um, is a nurse. Oh. And so she had oh. uh, trained in the Philippines and then came to the United States in the 1960s as an exchange nurse. She met my father and then decided to stay in, uh, this, uh, in, in New Jersey is where she had both me and my brother. Um, and so I remember some of my earliest memories of being in the healthcare environment was my mom taking me to work, sitting at the nursing station, <laughs> for her to get done. And then I distinctly remember going to pick up her check. So, you know, there was no such thing as direct deposit. But I remember walking over to yeah. the, you know, payroll department, picking up her checks. That's and true. the other distinct memory I have of my mom was, you know, um, we would always get snowstorms. So not like Southern California and not. <laughs> I remember being just amazed that the hospital would send an SUV to come pick up my mom oh. because she had to go to work. Oh, wow. Um, you know, my dad's an engineer. He never um. got an SUV sent for him. For <laughs> so, uh, my mom, it was definitely um, something that she was. Uh, very passionate about, always, um, you know, advocating for her patients. And I think that's something that she instilled in me. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So nursing was always very near and dear to my heart. 
And uh, I didn't forget my father. I did do biomedical engineering as an undergrad, and then I decided ah. to attend medical school. I see. So both I of see. them are retired now, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're both retired. My mom was um, in nursing for over 40 years. She worked at the same exact hospital, Muhlenberg Hospital in Plainfield, New Jersey, for uh, 30 plus years. She retired in her 60s, and now both of them are in their 80s living in, in Delaware. How are they doing? They're doing quite well. They are ready for this uh, pandemic to be over so they can start uh, socializing again. Um, our entire Filipino community that was in Piscataway, New Jersey, moved to Dover, Delaware. And so I think they have a more active social life than I do. <laughs> oh, so you say you don't have social life, but what do you do on your off days or, you know, when you're not, when you're not working, you must have something like a hobby. Yeah. The last two years have been just crazy where it pretty much has been nonstop work because essentially, you know, with the uh, COVID being novel, it was a matter of creating new processes, new algorithms, new systems, and trying to really figure out what this virus could do and how we could stop it. Mm -hmm. um, so I really haven't had time <laughs> over the last uh, now, what are we, uh, 19, 20 months into yes. this? Yes. Um, but when I do have time, I do golf. And that I did pick up from my parents. So both my parents, they golf. still golf, 80, oh, wow. 81 and 82. And they All still right. shame us because I will you know, only golf nine holes and they'll be like, you have to do all 18. <laughs> how are the, how are the golf courses out there in Washington? I know in New Jersey, they have a lot of beautiful golf courses. How is it in Washington, DC? Uh, they're okay. But I will say that my favorite place to golf is the Philippines. Oh. Um, my parents mm -hmm. do, they, uh, created a retirement home for themselves in Tagaytay. Oh. So we oh. tend to go there. They go there every year. Um, and so they're there for the winter months, of course, to escape uh -huh. the snow mm -hmm. and cold. Um, so they're there from January to March or so. And then I typically go every other year to go visit them. And the golfing there is just phenomenal. Nice. So n DC just doesn't compare. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So when was the last time you went home to the Philippines? Uh, it was right before the pandemic was oh. January 2020. So we I were see. in um, um, Manila and in Surigao, and I think my nephew got COVID. Actually, oh. <laughs> but uh, he? he did fine. He had a oh, fever on fine. the airplane on the way home. Um, but uh, everybody, yeah, I'm glad my nephews got to go to the Philippines before this all hit. Mm, all right, nice. Doctor Ferrer, you now work at the Children's National Hospital. How different is that uh, from where you were at Baylor College of Medicine? Oh, so, you know, I uh, did my residency in both internal medicine and pediatrics at Baylor in Houston, Texas, and then I didn't quite know what I would do after that. And eventually I found myself drawn to doing global health, and I ended up in uh, sub-Saharan Africa in Lesotho, little tiny country completely surrounded by South Africa, basically um, working on the scale-up of pediatric HIV care and treatment. Um, and so uh, that, again, was very programmatic in terms of implementation and oper operationalizing uh, medical care and treatment for kids, finding kids who had HIV, um, testing them, treating them, and getting them onto life-saving antiretroviral medication therapy. And so I was doing that about 15 years ago in 2005. Um, I was the second pediatrician for the country. 
And we essentially had zero kids on antiretroviral therapy. So my job was to scale that up. Um, so from now at Children's National, it was so incredible that now I find myself in another pandemic, oh, <laughs> right? Gosh. Where almost everything I was doing now for the COVID um, epidemic, I was doing 15 years ago for HIV oh, in Sub-Saharan yeah, Africa. Yeah, and right. so very similar in terms of the approach, in terms of messaging, of getting the community involved, of again, uh, so almost making things up as you go along uh, and trying to figure things out because nobody's done it before. That's right. Um, so very uh, similar in a very eerie way in terms mm -hmm. of trying to deal with something new and then create new um, processes and systems in order to uh, protect people, mm -hmm. to protect, uh -huh. you know, for me, the way I got drawn into the COVID um, response at Children's was through occupational health. So again, protecting our staff, our employees, um, and then uh, downstream effects of protecting our patients and our families. And so, you know, a lot of it was working with nursing, mm -hmm. was that uh -huh. the nurses in this pandemic have certainly borne the brunt of it in terms of, especially in the beginning, you know, doctors could work from home sometimes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Tell us the nurses, especially in terms of bedside, you know, you have to go in yes. and they were literally doing everything, um, you know, for all the COVID patients oh, um, because see. nobody else was stepping up, but um, nursing certainly did. That's and so true. that's how um, I got involved with um, doing the COVID response and then also obviously doing the pediatric side of the COVID response as well. I see. So as the lead physician for the occupational health COVID-19 response, how was the experience during the design and implementation of the COVID-19 testing protocols and vaccination efforts for the employees? Yeah, so a lot of it um, relied on collecting data, which is, I think, something that we did well early on in terms of it, building it um, a database in order to be able to see what the patterns were mm -hmm. in terms of transmission um, within the hospital, and then to be able to reassure our staff and then to make adjustments in terms of infection control measures, in terms of testing algorithms, which symptoms we needed to look out for, and who we needed to isolate, and who we needed to quarantine, mm -hmm. um, and who would likely test positive. Because as you know, there's a huge nursing shortage for one, yes. um, and healthcare That's providers true. in general, especially now, yeah. that you had to balance the risk of you know, uh, an employee coming to work sick with COVID versus absenteeism. Because mm -hmm. I know, I remember my mom, <laughs> she had the little calendar up that said three to 11, three to 11, three to 11. <laughs> and, you know, if she had to call in sick, that was that was a big deal. Yes. Uh -huh. um, and even more so now when you have, you know, limited uh, capacity of, um, you know, people to pull from in terms of um, your uh, uh, reserves. Mm -hmm. So is there like a vaccine mandate at the hospital uh, now of where, where you are? Is, is everybody? Yeah. Yeah. So this was something that we were probably one of the first children's hospitals to issue a vaccine mandate. Oh. And I think this was critical um, in terms of, you know, it's very critical in terms of turning this around. Mm -hmm. um, and we issued our mandate in June. Oh, wow. <clears throat> In June, yeah. it was a totally different landscape. Yes. In June, in all of the, our hospital, we have about 8,000 employees. We had a total of three employee infections. 
Wow. It was at the nadir. June was definitely the nadir. And the problem is Delta came. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we didn't know how Delta was going to impact our um, our numbers, yes. but they just shot up such that oh. we hit, you know, basically a peak in August, early September, where we were about 30% of our peak in November and December of the, the uh, prior year when that was really where it was, you know, hitting us hard. Yeah. And so by calling the mandate in June, it was important to give our, our staff time. Mm-hmm. People needed time to sort of get the information, the accurate information, as you know, lots of misinformation, lots of conspiracy theories that are just plain wrong. Uh-huh. Um, and to be able to, you know, get used to the idea that they would need to get vaccinated, not only for their protection, but the protection of our patients yes. who are children. Yes. They can't get vaccinated, less than 12. Right. And mm-hmm. so uh, to protect our patients and again, their families and eventually also the entire community. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think, again, having that forward thinking of doing the mandates early, giving people time to do their own research to get the messaging right, get the right information to the right people at the right time, um, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually mm-hmm. as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really key to have nice. then the mandate is we made it September 30th. So we gave people June, July, August, and September, four months to sort of start getting on board. Nice. And um, so we had a mandate. Yes, of course, we also had, you know, they could apply for an exemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, medical exemption and a religious exemption. Um, but in the end, September 30th, we did not have to terminate one employee. Wow. Congratulations. I see. It was huge because, again, we know that some people just can't wrap their heads around yes. it. And we know that they're good, good employees, good mm-hmm. nurses, good mm-hmm. doctors, good, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, technicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have whatever their reasons are. Um, we just mandated that they had to um, they had to submit uh, for a declination or they had to get the vaccine. I see. You have mentioned uh, nurses and other um, patients and families. How about you as a physician? How did this affect you? Well, besides it completely changed my scope of practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so essentially most of my time then went to um, again, doing a lot of communicating, doing a lot of town halls, doing a lot of huddles, because eventually what convinces someone to get vaccinated is not, uh, it's that one-on-one, that one-on-one interaction. Yeah. And yeah. So, um, again, uh, uh, finding those trusted messengers, um, and getting the message out. And I think it also, um, as a practicing physician, um, I think the hardest thing to get used to was being in the face masks all the time and being in the pappers where you couldn't hear, you couldn't read people's lips. And it kind of changed the way you communicated with the, the families, um, where it almost put a little bit more distance. Like you don't know what they really look like. They don't know what you really look like. Um, and I think that took a lot of getting used to. So not only could I not hear them, but they couldn't hear me. I felt like I was always yelling at them, <laughs> especially when you had that papper on and the uh-huh. fan is going and you just can't hear anymore. Right. I can um, imagine. That definitely changed uh, sort of my perspective and my practice as a physician. And then I think teaching as well. So this is, I think, an unintended consequence as well, is that over the winter then for kids, you know, we didn't have a large volume of patients in the winter time. Right now, we're seeing our winter season come mm-hmm. in August and September, which is 
very bizarre. Mm -hmm. But in terms of both nurses and doctors, then um, the trainees, they didn't get experience of seeing Mm -hmm. asthma, bronchiolitis, Uh croup. And so a lot of our interns, they then became second years and they're supervising interns and they hadn't even seen it yet. And so there was this definite change in training um, in terms of having to go virtual and sort of the the um, downsides of that, of not being able to really be physically hands-on. Um, so as a clinician educator, I definitely saw a change in that. And, and Manny, I know you're a professor yes, yes. <laughs> as well. I'm, that whole change to go virtual just... It was huge. It, it took a lot of... It was huge. It took a lot of work. Yes. Yes. You, so, yeah. Dr. Dr. Ferrer, you are a faculty mentor, right, for the Children's National Residence. Now, has the number of residents specializing in infectious disease and immunology been affected by the COVID pandemic as far as the numbers? I don't think we know that yet. Mm-hmm. I think we're still in the middle of it and we'll see those um, that effect in a couple of years or so in terms of people, I think we'll become more interested uh-huh. in in terms of, you know, uh, this is something that, um, again, not only is an opportunity for you as a clinician, but uh, certainly in the FDA, in the CDC, you know, in terms of other uh, opportunities for growth for a resident and other ways, um, non-traditional trajectories that this 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 pandemic mm-hmm. has sort of opened up as you see the importance of the CDC, right? right. In terms of making guidelines and all the data that has to be um, reviewed right. in order to make these decisions that have huge implications. And then policy as well. You mm-hmm. see where, again, President Biden makes his mandate and that you know, can change the course of the entire country, uh-huh. right? And so where uh-huh. you see that sort of impact. Right. That's true. So although the weekly pediatric admissions reach a peak during the first week of September and has since declined in most states, along with adult COVID-19 admissions, there's uh, a lot of states, including Michigan, Oklahoma, Utah, Delaware, and Vermont, wherein pediatric admission rates have increased in the last two weeks, according to the CDC. Uh, We know that more of the older Americans are vaccinated in contrast to the younger population. Uh, With the relaxation of social distancing measures, cases increased across all groups, but more children tested positive relative to the uh, older adults. So here in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration gave full approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 16 and older and an emergency use in children 12 to 15 years of age. While this may be a welcome piece of news for many parents, some have questions before signing up their children for a vaccine appointment. So in your practice, how has the atmosphere been with parents or caregivers of children related to the COVID vaccine? So really, it's been a mixed bag. I would say, you know, there are some who are asking us to give the vaccines to their 11-year-olds and their (laughs) 10-year-olds, you know, who it's not even approved for because they believe in the safety and efficacy of it. It will protect the child. And not only that, it will allow some return to normalcy. And so it'll protect the child. It'll protect, 
you know, the family and the community. Um, but certainly there are those who are saying, okay, well, it's okay if I get it, but I don't want my kid to get it yet. Because again, the number one reason typically is they're afraid of the side effects. And then number two, they don't think it's been proven in terms of uh, the amount of time that has been spent uh, with the development of the vaccine. I see. And so, so oh. number one, the the data that has gone to the FDA and the F and the CDC to approve it for emergency use in 12 to 15, that clearly shows the benefit of it, the effectiveness of it, and the safety of it. In terms of looking at uh, the number of side effects, usually what people are most concerned about and what sort of really hit the news is this myocarditis. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or basically these kids that are getting inflammation of their heart or the the, uh, lining of the heart uh, a couple of days after they get the vaccine. Um, And again, they've reviewed all of that data. That's the one nice thing about, you know, the United States is we have a very robust uh, vaccine um, adverse events system for reporting. Um, So you can look at, you know, million data from millions of people. Um, And essentially what they found that it's a very rare, um, it's a very rare side effect. And not only that, typically, kids recover from it. They may be in the hospital for a couple of days, but they don't have ongoing issues uh, with their heart or anything like that, that it's uh, something that happens and then it's it's done. And I think uh, the um, one of the uh, other aspects to think about is if they didn't get the vaccine, then they would have an even worse time if they actually got COVID in terms of the effects on their heart um, and the effects on uh, of potentially having those complications if they got COVID. Mm-hmm. So certainly better if you're weighing your risks and benefits to get the vaccine. And again, very rare in terms of the possibility of getting it and the benefits clearly outweigh the risks. I see. So if a child had a COVID-19 COVID-19, should they still get the vaccine? Yes. And so the CDC has weighed in on this, that COVID-19 getting the acute infection may give you some natural immunity, which we think may um, protect you from getting reinfected for maybe 90 days, but we don't know how long that will last. If you get the vaccine, that gives you, again, another layer of protection in terms of uh, not suffering from severe disease or from death. Um, and so they still recommend that even though you've had COVID, even though you may have measurable antibody titers, that you should still get the vaccine because it just offers that extra layer of protection, okay. that the benefit still outweighs the, any risk from the vaccine. And really, it's it's uh, the mRNA vaccines. I know your other guests last week had talked about it, that it is a brilliant technology and has been in development for decades. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened, you know, in terms of the steps to getting to this vaccine that we were able to get it to basically bail us out of this (laughs) pandemic, Uh Um, that somebody (laughs) basically put all the steps in place so that we could benefit from all of the technology that's accumulated over the past several decades so that we can have this vaccine at this point in time. And Uh the other thing I wanted to point out Um, is that, again, many people say, oh, but it happened too fast. So number one, it's been in development for decades. And number two, the FDA and the CDC did not skip any steps at all for the approval of any of the vaccines. Mm -hmm. 
And so what they did was they did things faster in terms mm -hmm. of they did steps in parallel as opposed to in sequence. Uh -huh. And that's how they were able to shorten that time frame to instead of 10 years to one and a half years. They basically took out all the bureaucracy yeah. and they made people work, <laughs> more people work um, on it based since it was a pandemic and essentially focused all the energy and all the capacity and all the infrastructure into getting these vaccines um, uh, tested, reviewed. Um, and again, because it was a pandemic, we had more people to test it on <laughs> than ever before. So they had all the numbers. Uh, and that's actually what, what, why it's taking so long to review because they have a ton of data. Uh. And so they can review all that and know again, that um, with uh, a lot of volume in terms of the cases to look at, then um, we can be assured that they are safe. Right. Uh, Dr. Ferrer, you talked about risks and benefit. Now, uh, can we explain to our listeners, um, if a child gets a COVID infection, how does it affect them? And what are the possible worst outcomes from a COVID infection in children that you have seen or know that about? That is a fantastic, fantastic question. And so that has been actually one of the silver linings to this pandemic in that kids have not been as severely <clears throat> affected as adults. Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, uh, again, uh, they have uh, <clears throat> been able to uh, have less morbidity and mortality compared to our older adults and our, our seniors. Um, <clears throat> and so what they, about probably 2% of kids who are infected end up being hospitalized. So much lower than, for example, you know, people my parents' age, where that number is uh, close to almost 30, 35%. Um, and so again, 2% of kids who are infected will end up hospitalized. Um, about 5 million kids thus far have uh, been infected with COVID. And of those 5 million in terms of, um, death, it's less than 0.03%. Mm -hmm. So again, good numbers for kids, but it's still possible for the, I think there were approximately 500 or 600 deaths mm -hmm. of kids under 18. Mm -hmm. And so one death to me is way too much for something That's that right. we have That's a vaccine right. for. So, um, um, so go ahead, doctor. No, I was just going to say, so it's sort of what I worried more about in terms of for my nephews in particular, is that not necessarily the acute COVID illness, but the possibility of Miss C. So Miss C is something that knew that I had to, we all had to learn about as pediatricians now. So uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Oh, and so this is something completely new, similar to Kawasaki um, disease, which um, uh, we knew existed, but now occurring sort of in an older age group. And this is where you have multi-system involvement, um, typically occurs two to six weeks after a COVID infection, although in kids they may have had an asymptomatic COVID infection. And then you get this inflammatory reaction, basically a dysregulation of your immune system. Mm -hmm. And these kids are sick and they end up in the hospital um, and for potentially a prolonged amount of time sometimes three weeks, sometimes a month or so. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't know which kids that's going to affect and which it's mm -hmm. not. Uh -huh. Again, a re relatively rare event, but mm -hmm. still a possibility. Um, right. And hence, that's uh, one of the reasons why, um, you know, 
better not to get it and not play with it uh-huh. than even risk that potential. And then the other one is, you know, for adults, the scary part is long haul COVID, mm-hmm. right? Oh, Where yes, a majority yes. of adults who are potentially infected have symptoms for more than two months, uh-huh. um, or a large number do. And again, we don't know what that looks like in kids. It doesn't seem like it's as uh, prevalent um, in terms of long haul, but still something that, uh, again, if you have a vaccine, then why even take that that risk? That's right. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that the posit- of the um, uh, sickness or severity of illness for children with regards to this disease is lesser than the adult. So let's say a kid gets sick. How do we allay or alleviate the pa- parents' anxiety when it when their child is sick? I think it's the usual pediatric approach in terms of reassurance and having supportive care. Usually, again, most kids do quite well with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost one of the, um, one of the uh, more difficult side effects is the fact that then they're not in school. <laughs> they're not in school for a longer amount of time. Yes, and sure. sort of the mental health impact of that has been uh, incredibly challenging. Um, so that's another reason to get vaccinated, because if you're vaccinated, then the likelihood of you getting quarantined is going to be less. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my nephew, he's gotten quarantined basically uh, twice in a row. So he oh. got quarantined, went back to school. Somebody at lunch was positive, got quarantined again. And so now the entire sixth grade is back on virtual <laughs> learning. Oh, wow. um, but if everybody was vaccinated, then you don't have to worry about that as much because you certainly have decreased transmission once you are vaccinated. Dr. Ferrer, one of the things that we've learned from this pandemic, this COVID pandemic, is how it has disproportionately affected the minorities. Now, I do know that a lot of the Filipino Americans and certainly the uh, Latino families have a multi-generational household wherein they all, you know, in one household, you may have grandpa, grandma, you know, and the grandkids uh, living together. So, Um, have have you encountered um, any of these uh, families, uh, the children, the parents, um, you know, speaking about their concerns about this and how it has affected them? Absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the biggest concerns for the Filipino community in terms of our multi-generational households. You know, that was certainly one of my fears was that I would, you know, I spend a lot of time with my extended family and also with um, with uh, my parents who are older. And mm-hmm. I think the worst possible thing would be I come home and I infect my parents who are, you know, more um, more uh, susceptible to severe disease mm-hmm. and then something bad happens. And so, again, Uh, that definitely is one of the driving factors for the disparity in uh, the COVID uh, affecting uh, black and brown communities much more than other communities because of that multi-generational household. And the fact that, you know, Filipinos and um, a lot of uh, uh, our uh, uh, black and brown uh, brothers and sisters that they are working in essential positions. They're not in, you know, where in positions necessarily where, you know, they can telework. Mm-hmm i.e. our nurses, uh-huh. right? They have to take transportation to get to work. Uh-huh. Um, and they have to potentially be in uh, crowded break rooms uh, where they're exposed to others. Um, 
And so certainly I think that's one of the driving factors. Um, and, you know, it, it, it also has a, certainly a socioeconomic uh, aspect to it um, where, you know, we would have um, uh, some of our uh, Latino families say, you know, I, I can't test because if I am positive or if my um, uh, husband is positive, that means I can't work. And that's my livelihood. That's how I put food on the table. Um, so I think that's actually your other question about how it's impacted you as a doctor. That was quite disheartening and really seeing that disparity grow yeah. and seeing it real time front row mm -hmm. of how disparity occurs, where the people who are getting, you know, hardest hit were again, the most vulnerable, again, the people who um, were most disadvantaged. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then uh, seeing how then the the epidemic was impacting them even more so than others who already had a leg up. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So how, what do you think we should do as uh, health in, in, to be able to get the equality with regards to um, take, um, health in itself, health care in itself? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I think the vaccine is, mm -hmm. is one of them, right? Um, in terms of increasing access to vaccines um, physically. So you're in actual places where um, people of color live and where there's uh, less dis there disadvantaged neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of messaging, of getting you know, to places and using trusted messengers um, so that uh, they can hear accurate, um, information as opposed to um, relying on, you know, conspiracy theories or relying to what they're reading on the internet, uh, potentially, or what they're um, hearing on, um, you know, sort of uh, echo chambers um, within, you know, Facebook or, or wherever they're accessing their news. Um, I think messaging is a big, big um, aspect of this. Um, again, in terms of trying to uh, make it equitable access to information and to vaccines. So we have one uh, last question for you, Dr. Ferrer, before we let you go. What would be your message to parents and caregivers of children who are still hesitant in signing up for the COVID vaccine for their children? I would say my uh, message to uh, parents would be that when the vaccine does become available for your kid's age group, we're anticipating that 5 to 11 will be approved by the FDA on October 26th by the FDA and then approved by the CDC on November 3rd. So it's coming up that when it does get approved, then get the kids vaccinated. And why? Because it provides protection for your child but also prevents wider and continued uh, um, uh, prevents uh, continued spread of the virus. Um, and lastly, it also blocks new variants from developing. Delta threw us a curveball, and we don't want another curveball um, because we could get this under control if, again, people get vaccinated. You continue uh, with your infection control measures, um, and really that um, this is you know one of the ways that you protect your child, you protect your family, and you protect your community. Um, and really, it's the the best way for us to return not only to a sense of normalcy, but to give us some peace of mind, <laughs> so you don't have to always worry about it. 
um, that really it's that layers of protection of, um, you know, sort of assessing your risk and then using the tools that you have been given, vaccine, masking, social distancing, ventilation, um, again, using all of those to your advantage so that you can protect yourself, your family and our community. Well, we thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ferrer. This has been a most pleasurable conversation. Uh, you gave us a lot of valuable information uh, to our listeners and viewers. So thank you. Uh, we hope to engage you again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. thank you so much. I had a great time. It's always wonderful uh, to, to chat with you. And uh, I look forward to getting to uh, talk again. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ferrer. With us tonight on the second segment of our episode number two of Rise Up is Dr. Risa Mauricio, who's an advanced practice nurse in pediatric critical care medicine and assistant professor of undergraduate studies at the Sissick School of Nursing at University of Texas Health. Risa was inducted as fellow of the American College of Critical Care Medicine in 2015. She's the chair of Quality and Safety Committee of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, a journal reviewer of the journal Pediatric Healthcare, chair of the Practice Committee and of the COVID-19 Heal Our Nurses Kabalikat Program of the Philippine Nurses Association of America. Risa is also a board of trustee of the Philippine Nurses Association Metro Houston Foundation and the PNAA representative to the Nursing Collaborative on Environment and Maternal Child and Women's Health and to the Texans for Healthcare Access and the chair of the Philippine Collaborative on Planetary Health. Risa also served as a past board of director at the American Association of Critical Care Nurses and a past president of the AACN Houston Gulf Coast Chapter and past president of PNA Metro Houston. Risa's research interests are in the quality of life of children and adolescents and was the co-primary investigator on quality of life measures of children and adolescents with progressive cancer. Uh, Risa is also the primary investigation for age-appropriate early mobility activities of critically ill children, anticoagulation strategies for critical, critically ill children. Um, Risa is also a speaker, a lecturer, uh, for several educational presentations. So, Risa, good evening. How are you? Hello, good evening, Mandy. Very good How are you, Risa? It's Mindy Glad here. Glad to be here with you. Hi. Hi, Mindy. Glad to see you and oh, hear you again. <laughs> yes. So, um, so now you had your undergraduate education in the Philippines, right, uh, for your BSN? Correct. I graduated from the University uh -huh. of San Carlos in Cebu City. We were actually the first batch. We were, I'm always uh -huh. a um, trailblazer, uh -huh. Manny and Mindy. So um, any like whether here or like I also trailblazed uh -huh. the advanced practice at Texas uh -huh. Children's Hospital in Houston. And um, the same thing in the Philippines when I was in college, uh -huh. we were the first batch um, at the University of San Carlos. Uh -huh. So it was fun. It was a fun group, and um, it's always nice. I don't know if you guys know University of San Carlos. It's um, entrenched into engineering, and they have a lot of um, actually a top-notch engineering um, students graduate, especially mm -hmm. in the College of Chemistry. 
So from the Philippines, did you go directly to Texas? No, I did not. Um, I actually um, worked in the um, Union Carbide Philippines. So Union Carbide, there's Union Carbide, the mother organization is Union Carbide of America, right, in the United States. And they have a an Asian um, corporation as well, so a branch of them, and we're part of that. So I started actually as an industrial nurse, and... Um, I should have been hired and um, in in Davao City, but then I changed my mind when I was offered that job because obviously the the pay is much higher. So when you're young, <laughs> you go for where the money is. And so that's what I did, and um, I was conflicted initially whether that was the right route for me because you know you go into nursing, you thought you would serve people. But then my dad said, you know, he gave me a book. My dad is a is a very intelligent man, and instead of telling me to do or you know what to do or not to do, he gave me a book to read. And from book from that book, I found out that it's really not, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to follow the book, yeah, um, in your path. You can yeah. also create your path. And exactly what I did. And so even when uh-huh. I was an industrial nurse, I was into already um, taking care mm-hmm. of advocating for um, the community issues. So um, I would go the first time I develop a program yeah. for that organization. Um, I develop a program for the um, for the workers. Uh-huh. So I would go home and visit. Wow. Imagine that I would go home visit house to house and then create a preventive program. So I mm. went into vaccination. Um, I don't know if you remember in the Philippines that um, the government mm. will have stacks of vaccine. And then it's not well um, established, I would say, because I cannot re- recall before that that is part of us entering school. So that was my program to promote vaccination among um, families, including especially yeah. children. And the um, and the people in the United States uh-huh. were impressed with that program. So that's yeah. how I started. And then later on, um, with how the Philippines was going, I got married. I decided to come over here thinking that um, I probably would give a better life for my children if they are here. And, and that's how it started. I came over, um, and after a year, I promised myself and my family that if I did not get them a visa, I would go back to the Philippines. And um, with the blessings from above, I was able to get a visa. So they were able to come over here, but that was a long and trying year to be waiting for your family. I had um, two kids at that time. So they finally came over and we started in New Jersey. And that's where I started. Yeah, New Jersey. That's where, in Chicago's New Jersey, it's like uh-huh. an hour from New York City. And um, and that's how I started my crit- critical care nursing. I love critical care that I never left since then. Until now, I'm still with critical care. So, I'm a critical care nurse too, as a background. Yeah. Um, and- uh, how, uh, how did, what was your experience with regards to your family was in the Philippines and you as uh, adapting to a new environment as a nurse? It, it was, it was certainly difficult because, you know, I had my 
two girls. Um, I have two girls and a boy. The boy was born here. Um, the two girls were three and five. So those were the ages that I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, not that they don't need their mommy at all when they're bigger, but even when they're young, they need their mom, yes. right? Those are the formative years. And I'm always for um, psychology. That's my niche. Like I thought I'm going to be a psychiatrist, but psychology, right? So I knew the first six years of life is truly important to an individual, but I wasn't there for at least a year at least. So I said, that's why I said I promised myself that if I cannot be with them um, in the next um, year or so, then I have to go back to the Philippines. And I was blessed that we were able to, I was able to get them a visa. At that time, there was mm -hmm. a visa called Family Re Reunification. And ah. so I got yeah, I got them, and then after a year, another year or two, we got an immigrant visa. So it wasn't like the long, arduous road that a lot of um, Filipino nurses have experienced. So we were away for, for a year. And going back to your question, Mindy, it was hard, lots of tears, probably more than, a, um, <laughs> you know, a drum of tears flowing. <laughs> but, um, you have to do it. I always have a goal in mind that eventually when they come over here, you know, it's going to be better education and always having education in mind. That was the reason why we want them to come over here. And, um, I think with that, the girls matured very quickly because there was no mom that would be with them. I mean, you know, my sisters were there and helped my husband um, take care of them. And as well as my parents and my husband's um, dad. But then I think it's different when um, when there's no mom. So my, my best friend will always, like, um, call me or tell me that, um, you know, the, the house is different when you're not there and how it's being set up is different. And then, but then my, my siblings would say, Oh, the kids have gotten fat now because you're not there because I won't allow them. I mean, when they were growing up, they're not allowed to eat chips or, you know, those, <laughs> those food. They're, they always need to eat healthy. Even um, when they were babies, I would like mash those potatoes or what have you. Um, vegetables, so no ramen, those kinds of things. But when I left, they eat a lot of ramen. They eat like those barbecues uh, along the street with lots oh, of I dust. See. So they eat those. <laughs> That's why my brother said that they became healthy because <laughs> now they're eating all the germs and their body, their immune system is now robust because of that. So yeah. Um, so fun. Risa, um, when you started nursing, pediatrics wasn't your specialization. So what brought you to pediatric critical care medicine? It wasn't, it was uh -huh. um, critical care, uh -huh. but not necessarily pediatrics, because when I started um, in New York, New Jersey area, it was always mm -hmm. been adult in critical care. When I came to Houston, I interviewed mm -hmm. many institutions and only one pediatric institution, mm -hmm. and that's Texas Children. And then I was impressed. When I reflected on it before I took the job, I said, I said, I think this would be better for me because I really like kids. I like developmental, um, you know, progression of children and how, you know, the brain is formed, you know, along those lines. And I said, so, 
maybe I can do something when they are in intensive care. So that morph into a quality of life of children and family. And, um, and it's true too that they smell much better than <laughs> the adult. No offense to adult people, but they smell much better and they, they weigh lesser than adult people. Because I would recall when I was in New Jersey, for instance, in one of the critical care um, unit that I was um, in. I mean, when you when you do pediatric, dia- I mean, when you do dialysis with a two hundred, three hundred pounder, oh my God, that's it's a lot of load on you. Like physically, mm-hmm. mentally, emotionally, everything, you know. And um, I think, you know, I was convinced then that it would be easier physically for me um, taking care of them. Not knowing, though, that um, I was immersed in a very emotionally laden environment. Not that you don't think much when you're taking care of adult in an ICU. But I think for children, because you still think of their future, Mm-hmm. And what future they will have if they are, you know, chronically ill or maybe even um, in the intensive care and then eventually will have a chronic condition, um, much less having um, a life-threatening illness that they come to you all the time that would just affect the progression of their growth. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you've been an um, APN, Advanced Practice RN in a critical care unit. So how did the pandemic affect you? So um, it was, it, I, I, it's not um, particular specific on being a critical care. And I think um, it's like the same as what everybody was feeling when it started, that it is difficult to be in an environment where there were a lot of uncertainties. I mean, at the beginning, when the pandemic started, no one knows what to do, including PPE. Should you mask? Should you have a, um, you know, an N95? And the PPE was also in short supply. So that was um, more of the difficulty to me, not very much about critical care. And at that time, too, there were not a lot of kids sick with COVID, right? It was mostly the adult. So this um, increase in the incidence of um, COVID mm-hmm. admissions happened um, when the Delta variant came in. And because a lot of the adults, especially those that are 65 and older, have been vaccinated, and this age group that I'm taking care of are not, until finally, you know, there was a vaccine for um, the the adult mm-hmm. adolescents and young adults. That's the, you know, 12 right. now to 18. And so at the beginning, it wasn't. So basically, it was the same as everybody, fear of anything, fear of the unknown, that I don't know what's going on. And then um, in the intensive care, which I think is similar to other intensive care, you're around with a slew of people and social distancing cannot happen. And there was no regulation at the beginning of how, how do you round with everybody in the intensive care when there's a lot of specialists that you round with them together because there's certainly more of advantage when you round with other disciplines, not only you know, the ICU during rounding. So that adds more to the um, to the number of people during um, daily rounds. So that was it. And then us being a provider in the intensive care, we do a lot of invasive procedures. And one of those um, is intubation. But then quickly our leadership recalibrated and said, 
you know, just have the physician to do the intubation. So there are specific group of people that can intubate. And so we are not exposed at all to it because I was scared, like, you know, um, intubating kids. And we know from the beginning that um, the transmission is through that route. So that really scared me a lot. I was getting paranoid and and many more. And um, and you just have to, again, to be, you know, prayful and um, make sure that you take care of yourself, which is actually very hard. It's easier said than done. Um, I try to take care of my staff, but again, easier said than done. But eventually you recalibrate thank, thanks um, to God and um, hone your resilient skills. So now, even though that, you know, we're still in COVID, at least there is some little bit of comfort, but um, I always remind myself not to um, to be, you know, just com- confident about it and nonchalant about things. But um, because COVID is still there, no matter what. The good thing about it is because I am vaccinated, so there's a bit of confidence in taking um, taking up invasive procedures or be with other people, even though you know that you when you're around or when you're in intensive care, there's many of you and social distancing is not happening. Let's just be honest about that. But we are masking and we are vaccinated. So, that's so better. Risa, here in the U.S., uh, the the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, already gave full approval for the uh, Pfizer BioNTech COVID nineteen vaccine for children aged sixteen and older, and an emergency use in the children uh, twelve to fifteen years of age. Um, in in your um, encounter with families with their children. Um, what is the atmosphere there? Uh, do they do you uh, get a lot of questions related to it? Um, a lot to to oh, the vaccine to and and to the COVID. Yeah, uh, specifically uh, for the pediatric population. Yeah, they do have and, and quite, the question is really mm-hmm. about the safety. Okay. And so, so what we do with, um, with children alone, I mean, you know, you, you, we talk to parents and families a lot, right? And whether it's about the COVID condition or the, um, COVID disease alone, even though their children are not admitted because of COVID, mm-hmm. there are parents, not all of them are in the intensive mm-hmm. care because of COVID, right? Um, even though that their children are admitted not because of COVID, you still get questions mm-hmm. of the COVID disease mm-hmm. and the COVID vaccine. And so um, the atmosphere in the intensive care is the same thing as when in any critical care environment. Um, there's not much change except when they know that a neighboring, you know, mm-hmm. patient has COVID. They would try to, you know, retract from from that area which is good they don't need to be there um there are also families that are recalcitrant in in trying to think of you know the vaccination because they think that no amount of vaccine can prevent them and that's usually a challenge however i think um when families ask me those you always want um, to ask about their story much as you would offer their story as well so when you have when they ask me about question of COVID disease, I would give examples of 
kids that are admitted because of COVID. And in the critical care environment, I would tell them, um, while there's a lot of kids that when they get admitted to the critical care, um, they go home um, just fine. And um, some of them with oxygen. However, there's percentage of those kids that are in extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO. So requiring, in other words, um, I don't use the word ECMO to the family. I just said requiring more technology on that um, more than anyone else and are in the ICU longer than anybody else. And um, and there's a lot of reason for that. So I gave them what are who are those kids that are long staying longer in the intensive care because of COVID, right? And those are people with com- comorbidities, certainly. So one, I'll tell them a story about that, how this family is agonizing about, you know, how their child has COVID and this mom has to take care of other children. And in addition to that, she herself, for instance, I gave this mom a story about another mom who has other children to take care of. And she's a single mom. And so that and coming to the intensive care and taking care of other kids, she doesn't have... I mean, an army of support to handle all of those in addition to a single mom, a single breadwinner. And so if she is divided between children in the ICU and children at home, who's going to take care of their food? Who's going to, um, you know, where would they get money mm-hmm. to buy food on the table? And so I said to that family that there's definitely a lot of burden when you have that kind of disease. So that's why it's very important that their children need to be vaccinated if the vaccine is available. Because right. there's still ages that doesn't have right. availability of vaccine, right? The, the younger, no. um, yes, younger yes. than 12 years of age. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And so that is still not available. And I said, you know, plus the fact, too, that the science of COVID is still new. And we don't know what's going to happen to our kids that will have COVID. Yes, they are going home. Some of them are just on oxygen. So, I mean, better than children that died, definitely. But then again, you don't know what's going to happen to them in the long run. Because we know that in the adult science, you know, when this happened last year, a lot of the adults got sick. And and the science that's available for for those adults that went home, there's um, a lot of complications, mm-hmm. what they call the neurobrain, right. that they get foggy. And so think about a child that still has a developing brain, and then eventually, because they're sick with COVID, that complication happens to them. So what's going to happen to their um, brain development or their development in itself? So I give them examples of what's potentially going to happen so that they can uh, mull and think about it, especially those that are hesitant and recalcitrant to vaccines. And, um, you know, I, I respect, especially those that have um, negative opinions of vaccine, I respect their um, opinion because, you know, diverse mm-hmm. people have diverse ideas, but then also um, having them realize what's going to happen if they don't have, because there's solid research now that has shown that if um, children are exposed to unvaccinated um, group of people, whether it's adult or other children, hence those that are going back to school um, and they are with um, friends or classmates that are unvaccinated, they get it as well. 
And um, what if they get it and they they are those small percentage of kids that um, become very, very sick and would be on, you know, um, cardiopulmonary support, right? And what's going to happen to them in the future? And so telling them a story, definitely to have that understanding. And um, I also, um, when you dig deeper into family's life, you would also realize that Actually, the reason why they don't want the vaccine is not because, or they didn't get the vaccine themselves as an adult, it's not because they don't want the vaccine, because they don't have a transportation to go to the vaccine hub, or they cannot mm-hmm. afford to be off work because, you know, if they're off work, then they're not paid, right? So there are mm-hmm. there are places, there are employers that if you don't work, you don't have a pay. So if you're the only breadwinner in the family and you are not you're not paid even for a day or two because, you know, some gets a vaccine for them. Then the following day, they're still um, off because of whatever side effect. Um, I think especially me that got a vaccine, I have to sleep. I mean, I have to sleep the whole day. So that would require two days already. And some people can afford to have that. And so I think those are the things that we need to consider when talking about people. Certainly, what is important, I think, for me, talking about COVID, this disease, and the vaccine, it's important to have that understanding and communication because that's the only way I think we can help one another. Because if you don't have that dialogue, then and you just pretend that you know someone is foolish or someone is you know acting not right and labeling each other, the more we would be at war with each other instead of helping one another. And I think that's just my principle of taking care of people. And other than the disease processes that you have mentioned and treatment, what have you, what others have, what other things that you have learned from this pandemic? I mean, many things. I mean, to begin with, if you talk about communicable, like just community nursing or community health, we were not ready with this pandemic, right? And I think we all know that. Um, not only we in the United States, but the whole world. But um, don't think about it. I And I always rely on science and always relying on the United States being the grand, um, you know, nation that can support R&D, the research and development, or always ahead, um, especially in terms of technology. But then we were not ready with the pandemic because we don't even have that group of people that um, were tasked to do, you know, emergent or um, emerging diseases, communicable diseases that was, um, I think, abolished by the previous administration. So not going into politics, but just the reality. And in fact, there was a um, a congress or a conference of um, experts in infectious disease and virology um, the year prior to, I would say, when COVID hit. And um, we we all know, the world know that we were not ready because there were a lot of action plans that needed to happen. That did not happen. And then this COVID hit. For instance, I mean, as nurses, we we know this. There were, there were no PPEs to begin with. So we were all scared. Like, how can you take care of, um, you know, an infectious, an infected person? You know that high, that transmission, transmissibility of the disease is so high, especially with this um, Delta variant. But then at the beginning, 
you also know that the transmission is very high, but you don't have the the proper um, PPE to take care of them. Imagine um, I wore an N95 that was worn by another person the previous day. I mean, oh. come to think of that, that has never happened in my life in my 30-some years in the United States, but it did happen. And for United States to do, I mean, to be doing that, right? We're supposed to be the standard of care. And I know they said research has shown that it's okay. In a way, it's um, disinfected or sterilized or what have you. But still, that's in your mind that this is worn by another person. And some of them even have like the makeup marks. But you got you have to use it because there's nothing else that yeah. you can use. I mean, and you have to wear an N95 because you're taking care of patients, and um, you know, just things like that. And um, you have to have a goggles as well to be going around. So you go around with a foggy goggle, and um, it it was really a truly amazing adjustment. So that's one in terms of um, what have I learned. The other thing I have learned also that I've never, none of us have been to any pandemic, right? Um, I should say none. I think there was an over a hundred year old lady that was in the, um, the flu pandemic in the 1918. But anyway, most of us never been to a pandemic. And I think what I've learned from this pandemic that hopefully there's none in the future, but it, if ever there is one, there should be a united front, same communication and consistent communication for everybody because i think what's happening to us is there's a lot of noises and when i say noise that's the misinformation and we are not focused on something that all of us should follow and because of that you know anyone can just do whatever they want to do compared to other countries when their um, leadership government leader says you know we need to do this we need to do that and they all followed their numbers are lower than what we have. And um, and to know that United States is the number one in terms of incidents and death in the whole world, I think that's a very disappointing thing. Because, you know, we, we as a country, we have the money, we have all the technology, but a lot of people are dying. And it's certainly very disheartening to me, not only because I'm a pediatric um, um, nurse, but also to have four kids to die and the disease is preventable. It's really disheartening. It's so sad. Children are not supposed to die this early, right? Yeah. Um, they're still so young. They have a lot of future ahead of them, but a lot of, the, of their lives are cut short because of COVID and because of something that could have been prevented. So, um, um, Risa, what would then be your message to parents and caregivers of children? who are eligible for the vaccine, but whose uh, parents or caregivers are hesitant in signing up for the COVID vaccine for their children. What, what would you tell them? It's very simple. They need their children to be vaccinated and they sh mm -hmm. should be their own model um, of their children because once mom and dad are vaccinated or you know aunts and uncles are vaccinated, the children would say too, why can I not have that? If you think that that's also good for you, that also will be good for me, right? Um, so they need their children vaccinated. And if they don't want to be vaccinated, my plea to them is have your children vaccinated because you don't want their lives to be cut short because of a preventable disease. 
I mean, you certainly, you, when you become a mom and a dad, you have plans and dreams for your children, right? And all of us have dreams for our kids to be doing well, to be dancing well, to be singing, whatever, and to have a happy life. And then for that to be cut short because of a preventable disease. I don't think that um, if I'm a mom, I would forgive myself. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing to a mom. And I have said that. And I've said that. And I said, if I have little children now, and even though the um, the vaccine, you know, is still new, because that's always the reason why they don't want their children vaccinated, right? Because um, they're afraid of the side effect. And, and, and it is um, understandable because in any change, there's always going to be and early adopters and the late adopters, but you would just wish that those late adopters will have that decision before something happened to their children. And I said that to to um, several of the moms that I've talked to, and I would that would ask me that I don't want my children's life to be cut short because of a preventable disease. Because you, as a mom or as a dad, you would try your best to do anything and everything for your children. And I think that's just you know, a fact for any kind of mom or dad. Mm. Should a child that had COVID still get the vaccine? Yeah. I mean, anyone, anyone, whether child or adult, they should still get a vaccine. And there's a stipulation in terms of the period. Um, it's 90 days after they were diagnosed with COVID. Mm. They still need to get the vaccine because we don't know. Um, as I said, the science and COVID is still new. So we don't know on how natural immunity or um, from the COVID disease, I mean, the acquired immunity from having um, COVID would last. We don't know that. I think the science that has come out from derived from adults that had COVID, um, the the antibodies would wane. Mm-hmm. I see. So that's why they still need need to get the vaccine. So, um, Risa, now uh, children also have routine vaccines that they have to get, you know, in in addition to the COVID vaccine. So, how does the COVID vaccine affect the schedule of the other routine vaccines for children? I would say it depends on what who mm-hmm. what age group these children were talking about. Well, for number one, they can actually get. Um, other vaccines okay. in addition to COVID, but that certainly mm-hmm. creates an angst among parents, right? Because, you know, you're giving me gazillion, but come to think about it, um, you know, in, um, in scheduled vaccines, there are vaccines that are given, um, like MMR, DTAP are given together, right? So that's also is a lot. And certainly if you still add COVID and flu, and that's yes. more, um, but, so, but only that portion of the age group will they still are having frequent vaccination. So, the older they are, the lesser vaccines they are, they are getting. And so, okay. that should not be a problem. The only thing that we need to think of is giving flu vaccines, which is now to children. And in addition to also giving COVID vaccine because, you know, the 12 and above are able to get vaccine now. And what if? The 5 to 11 will also be approved. And that discussion with FDA and, you know, um, CDC and what have you will going to happen, I think, two or mm-hmm. two weeks from now, October 26th. And so that's coming up in November. So I'm sure the parents will have that anxiety of what to do 
having to give flu and COVID together. So my advice right now to parents that, you know, are listening or would be listening to this podcast is get the flu vaccine now, such that when that vaccine becomes available to your child in that age group lesser than 12 years of age, then only one vaccine can be given. So that that angst of giving many vaccine, um, you know, will be prevented because you are you are planning it. Uh, and that's what I told the parents, plan ahead of time. Not all of your kids um, are scheduled to have vaccine now. So planning will definitely help them in terms of anxiety and also in taking care of them because um, you don't know the reaction of children to the COVID vaccine. I mean, even us adults has reaction to it and um, even a reaction to flu vaccine as well. So if you put that all together, um, that's probably the, where the anxiety is coming from. But if you plan it ahead of time, um, so it's, it would be much better for parents to handle, I would say. Mm-hmm. Have you seen worst outcomes from this disease? Absolutely. That's why they're in mm-hmm. intensive care, because I've seen worse outcomes. So um, those are rare, though. But of course, the rarest of all the outcomes will come to us. Um, and, and in those, um, those are the kids that are diagnosed with what they call um, the MIS-C, the multi-inflammatory mm-hmm. response um, syndrome. And um, because many of them, um, some MIS-Cs are not um, in the ICU, but there are um, a group of, of children that are in the intensive care and they will be ha- having a lot of supportive device, cardiorespiratory support device, including, you know, ECMO. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm also happy to say that amongst those, the children that have, that are requiring a lot of support, they have gotten out of the ICU, except again, those that are, have a lot of comorbidities mm-hmm. with chronic conditions. I well, uh, it's been a pleasure, Risa, uh, speaking with you and uh, a wealth of knowledge you've shared with us and a lot of interesting stories. Uh, we thank you. And this is all that we have for this episode. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Risa Mauricio and Dr. Kathleen Ferrer. And of course, my co-host, Mindy Ofiana, our director and producer, Rodney Cajudo, our executive producers, PNA president, Dr. Mary Joy Garcia Dia, and PNAA executive director, Carmina Bautista, and our uh, advisor, Nancy Hoff. And we will see you again next time here on Rise Up. Until then, keep on rising. See you next week. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you, too.